Are you that weirdo who loves weird food history? Well, then this is the podcast for you. Welcome to Happy Hour Gets Weird. Hi, welcome weirdos and friends or welcome back. This is Happy Hour Gets Weird. I'm Cassie. And I'm Tiffany. And we talk about weird shit and have drinks while we do it. And we want to thank you so much for joining us for happy hour. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Merci. Ooh, I love it. That's a little hint about what's to come in this episode. A little teaser. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, crunch, crunch. I don't have any hints for mine. Um, Before we get into our episode, I have to tell you this. Today, Mm -hmm. when I was driving back from the grocery store, Mm -hmm. the car in front of me had a personalized license plate, which you know I have, I have issues with. I, yes. So it said this, it said perfect, but with no vowels, right? So P-R-F-C-T. Uh-huh. Okay. And then it said P-R-K. Perfect park? Or is it perfect prick? (gasps) Perfect prick. Ooh, either way. Okay, either they're in the either they work for Parks and Recs. In which case, it is Leslie Nope or an unperfect prick that needs to change his license plate back to just the standard DMV issued license plate. I also do not like personalized license plate. I think it's the most narcissistic thing that you could possibly do to advertise to people that you have a perfect prick. <laughs> and if you're Leslie Nope, we know you're Leslie Nope. We know it. We can see you. Uh, unless you have a personalized license plate, then we love you and support you. Well, Tiffany Please does. let us know if you think it was perfect park or perfect prick because <laughs> I need answers. I need to know. Maybe they are, okay, maybe it's like parking car park, park, park your car, perfect parker, perfect park. Mm-hmm. Maybe. I just honestly, you just need to take the standard issue DMV license plate. I don't know why you would take time out of your day to get a specialized license plate. Unless it's the whale one and it donates to Sea Life. That's it. <laughs> that, that's the only time that we will accept this sort of situation. That is the only time. <laughs> so today we are drinking a, our cocktail for this week is a blood orange cocktail. I haven't named it yet. Full transparency. I'm still de- I'm still deciding on it, but it's delicious and it's blood orange. And for more information, please check out our Instagram. Yes, it is the. You know what? Let's just name it Perfect Prick. <laughs> okay, done and done. So if you want a perfect prick in your life, check out our Instagram for the recipe. Yes. Okay. So. Weird food history. Are you going to go first? Sure. Lay it on me. I want to start off by saying that I love weird history. I feel like 50% of the time when I drink too much, I end up talking about weird history. I love it and I'm here for it. Um, my source, my main sources for today um, are an article on Forbes.com and an article on History.com. Obviously. Mm, yes, Perfect. Today, I'm telling the weird story of Kellogg's cornflakes. John Kellogg was born on February 26, 1852, in a rural community within Livingston County, Michigan. When John was a kid, 
the Kelloggs moved to Battle Creek, Michigan, the headquarters for the newly formed Adventist Church in 1863, because the Kelloggs were devout Seventh-day Adventists. After the Seventh-day Adventists, so hard for me to say this, <laughs> sent John along with some other young people to attend a five-month course at Dr. Russell Trawl's Hygiotherapeutic College in hmm. New Jersey, John found a new interest. Although John rejected many of Trawl's non-traditional medical theories, the experience opened his eyes to a career in the field of medicine and more specifically health reform. So, Seventh-day Adventists are really big on healthy eating, you know, natural remedy type things. Like, mm-hmm. they're really into taking care of their body. Mm-hmm. So it's not surprising that the church would send John and other young people to this sort of a um, health care training, basically, yeah. is what I'm getting at. Yeah, they're super into, like, clean eating and whole eating. Not a lot of animal products or byproducts. Um, very healthy eating lifestyle. Yeah. So that's why the church, like I said, sent John and these other kids to this stu- to this um, doctor to learn from him. And Kellogg also studied under other early health reformers like Sylvester Graham, Larkin B. Coles. Because of all of this, John Kellogg's lifelong fascination with health and diet, focusing on natural remedies, preventative medicine, and vegetarianism began at a very early age. Sounds kind of cool. Yeah. And his ideas obviously had the Seventh-day Adventist slant to them. It's kind of what got him going in this direction. Yeah. By 1873, John was the chief editorial assistant for Adventist Health Reformer, a monthly publication on health and dietary habits. In all, John Kellogg wrote over 50 books and countless articles. Wow. He also lectured widely, arguing for the benefit of his health reforms. Calling his dietary theory the Battle Creek idea, which is where they live, Kellogg encouraged a diet that sounds honestly kind of like hell. Oh. I'm all for eating healthy, but it sounds, Dr. Kellogg, I think, kind of took it to a new level. Not so cool then. I think this is more him than Mm -hmm. anything from the church. This was more Mm -hmm. him kind of ramping it up to another level. Okay. So his diet included no meat, sparse use of eggs, sugar, milk, and cheese, and also no alcohol, boo, (laughs) tea, coffee, tobacco, and chocolate. No coffee and chocolate? Or sugar, or milk, or meat. Oh my goodness. It's it's a very uh, limiting diet. His total health regimen, which he later termed biologic living, included many concepts people still believe in today, including regular exercise, lots of fresh air, correct posture, sensible clothing, and an intake of 8 to 10 glasses of water a day. What do you mean I cannot eat a 16-ounce rare steak wearing nipple tassels in the middle of town hall? Are you kidding me? That's actually the diet that I'm currently on. (laughs) Mine is just full eight glasses of whole milk and edible underwear that's just what i eat you won't believe the amount of weight you will lose if you have to put on nipple tassels (laughs) and eat in a public forum i mean it's just i've lost so much weight just based on those rules alone um john also came to believe that daily enemas kept the intestines clean and free from disease okay well yeah he is next level okay 
also, I, re- I read this story that he went to the park and saw how many times, I don't know if it was, I don't know if it was like a monkey or orangutan or something. He saw how many times apes pooped at the uh, zoo. Uh-huh. And I guess they crap a lot. This is, I, I'm sorry, I don't even know wh- how I got here, but I guess they crap a lot. And because he saw that, he was like, I guess humans should be pooping more. Oh. And then that got him on this enema kick. Okay. Um, so. Well, maybe probably just a little bit more fiber and roughage in your diet. You don't need to shove water up your ass. <laughs> is that what an, well, I think, I mean, an enema could just be any kind of An enema right? is, I, 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 you full transparency, I've never actually done an enema, but I'm thinking what an enema is, is like a bag of water with a tubular piece on the end of it and you put the uh-huh. tubular piece in your culo and then shoot the water in there and then it comes oh, out. Oh, I was thinking just like I'm at a suppository Mm-mm. to make you poop. Mm, no, that's a suppository. An enema is like For the some act- reason I thought they were in- interchangeable. I mean, look, my I think my FBI agent has been pretty bored the last few days. I can Google it if you like. No, it's okay. It's fine. It's not important to this story. But of course, this is what we're going to focus on. Also, we should say this. Our podcast is for entertainment purposes only. We are not doctors. Oh, we are no. not teachers. We are Psychologists. not Psychologists. We are not journalists. Lawyers. Mm-mm. We are uh, we are barely functioning adults. So <laughs> we're barely human. <laughs> I, after after my research, I couldn't probably even be considered human. I'm probably like thirty percent maple syrup. I think I might just be a bag of trash. <laughs> <laughs> Blowing in the wind. Okay. <laughs> so But you're the most beautiful bag of trash I have ever seen. That is the best worst compliment I've ever received. Thank you. That was actually in my vows. That's what my husband said to me when we got married. So most notably, and this was the whole reason why I decided to do this story, uh-huh. to be honest, John believed a diet centered on bland foods like cereal uh-huh. would lead Americans away from sin. One very specific sin. Okay. Masturbation. Oh. That's right. I, I think that's the wrong direction that he's trying to <laughs> Give the dolphins some fucking cornflakes. <laughs> all right. Okay. Because <laughs> we all know dolphins are crazy masturbators. Um, all right. So I have a question mm-hmm. about Kellogg and cereal and the lack mm-hmm. of dairy. So were they eating dry cereal or were they allowed to drink, eat it with milk? Uh, I kind of, I kind of touch on that. Oh, okay, okay, cool. Perfect. So in, in 1876, John Kellogg agreed to take over the Western Health Reform Institute. A Seventh-day Adventist had founded the institute 10 years earlier in Battle Creek to provide natural medical remedies. The institute was near closure when John took it over, but with his guidance, it became the most popular and famous health retreat of its time. It had 20 patients when John started, but ended up with 700 beds. In all, over 200,000 patients were treated at what was called the SAN, including Henry Ford, John D. Rockefeller, Harvey Firestone, J.C. Penney, and C.W. <laughs> Barron. They were all treated for excessive masturbation? They were at this, it's like a health retreat and resort that the rich and famous would go to to get healthy 
to just better themselves. Oh, okay, okay. You know, like a fancy, basically, spa. Like a health spa, but... Yeah. To trying, like, new groundbreaking health treatments just because they had the money to burn yeah. and go there. Okay. All right. Got it. And natural remedies, preventative treatments, things like that. Okay. Got so it. So the San, as it was called, was doing great. John was married, although because he believed in living a celibate lifestyle, mm. even when married, mm. uh, his marriage was more of a partnership. Overall... <laughs> Things were going pretty great for John Kellogg. Okay. Land I mean, food, no sex, running this fancy resort. He was it living his best just like life. a dream. Yeah. yeah, my my dream come true. No masturbating, it sounds fantastic. <laughs> then John decided to start making health food to further his aim of healthy living. So as we've mentioned multiple times at this point, John Kellogg believed that man's modern diets led them to carnal sins. John Kellogg wrote, highly seasoned meats, stimulating sauces. Oh, God. And dainty tidbits in endless variety. Excuse me, dainty tidbits. (laughs) Irritates the nerves and react upon the sexual organs. Dainty tidbits, give me a boner, faux show. (laughs) Dainty tidbits is my stage name. Uh, Season me, baby. Hi, I'm Dainty Tidbits, and I'm Seasoned Meats. That should be our new intro from now on. (laughs) Highly seasoned meats. Oh, shit. Um. Call me Seasoned Meats from now on. Please, please. It was said that Dr. Kellogg wrote as much about the dangers of sex and masturbation as he did about healthy living. Mm. Like, the reason why he believed in being celibate was because he thought that sex created disease in men. Uh, he was pretty strict about this sort of thing, at, at least personally, it seems. Mm-hmm. So basically, John's health foods not only needed to be good for you, they also had to taste bad. Oh. Bland, seasonless food. Yes. Or else people might just get fucking horny. Well, I mean, you know, everybody knows that the more you season the meat, the the more orgies happen. <laughs> Cut to Cassie making dinner and just pouring a full pound of seasoning salt on her I mean steak cage it's like cajun and all jamaican seasoning and all kinds all of, of them so everything they're just orgies all over the world that have seasoned food it's just a it's a sex fest masturbation and sex everywhere I don't even know how they actually can make these seasoning salts in a factory without an orgy just breaking out I'm sorry Chinese five spice are you kidding me that one actually does make me horny I feel (laughs) I feel a little um triggered on that one Like so many great inventions, cornflakes was basically a mistake gone horribly right. In 1894, John and his brother Will were experimenting with a batch of boiled wheat, yum, yum. and left it out on the counter and just kind of forgot about it. After a few days, the pair found their forgotten batch, put the dry dough through rollers, and baked the resulting flakes. Interesting. And although Kellogg intended to use his new invention for chewing exercises, <laughs> because why not? It just sounds like the kind of weird shit he'd make people well, do. Yeah. Dry, bland food, you would need to be good at chewing or it's, you're going to choke. You're done for. It was another thing that he thought there was health benefits to excessive chewing. I, I can't, I couldn't go off on all the tangents of like oh random. He also believed in like baths at different temperatures. 
like I couldn't go I couldn't go off into all the tangents so the sand guests soon realize that the wheat flakes were even better with milk oh who who is a rebel that discovered that well because I believe the first cereal that was created was just a little bit before this I believe Mm -hmm. it was shredded wheat was the first cereal that was created so the idea was kind of in the back of people's minds although uh, John wasn't really kind of aiming for the milk spin. Well, yeah, I mean, it's pretty, it's, it's, it is sensual milk. <laughs> slow, slow pour milk. It is, but milk, it is promiscuous and it is enticing and it gets the people going. <laughs> I'm going to try to dub in some sexy music over you saying that, to be honest. Yes, do it. So after the success of what they called toasted wheat flakes, tons of imitators flooded the market with new versions of breakfast cereals. One cereal was created by a former sand patient, Charles W. Post, who was their biggest competitor. And Post was clearly inspired by his time at the sand because when he stayed there, he couldn't afford the fees. So he paid his way by working in the kitchen. So he oh. was like up front, up close and personal with the cereal making. So it was very obvious that post cereal, yeah, wouldn't have happened if he hadn't have stayed at the Kellogg's uh, resort. What wait, what I call it? Hell Spa. Multiple cereal makers wasn't a bad thing for Americans, however, who loved all the cereal options. Uh, just a little side note: this was a really great time for cereal for a few reasons. The boom in industrialism caused people to have to eat a fast and convenient breakfast. There were less farmers who could spend a little bit more time at home eating breakfast. More people were rushing off to work. Mm-hmm. Also, prior to this healthy eating trend, people were eating huge breakfasts. Mm-hmm. And they were just eating whatever they wanted. Like, they talked about having steak and cake for breakfast. Steak and cake. Sounds pretty fucking rad it was just people were eating whatever they would have for dinner for breakfast that sounds amazing but if i saw someone eating steak and cake i would immediately assume that they were insane (laughs) i don't know if it was like a meal of steak and cake but it was just like whatever you had left over for dinner or whatever steak or cake just whatever was in the fridge whatever whatever okay Okay. yeah and people were feeling the effects of eating heavy it was basically an epidemic of indigestion like people Mm -hmm. talked about it constantly people were not feeling great because they were just kind of eating whatever the hell they wanted right so basically cereal was the perfect solution to a multitude of very american issues Mm -hmm. unfortunately the success of kellogg's cereal and the sanitarium didn't prevent other issues from arising Hmm. will kellogg john's brother Mm -hmm. never had a very good relationship with his older brother it seems like John was a tireless workhorse and considered his younger brother lazy. John, as we can all kind of pick up by now, uh, also had extremely high standards for living a moral life. Oh, yes. Some might say <laughs> he was a fanatic. I think that we can all agree on that. <laughs> and I'm sure that nobody, including Will, could live up to his high standards. Right. Will wanted to take their cereal into another direction. Hmm. He saw the success that Post was having. Post cereal was so popular. And basically, Will wanted a piece of that cereal pie. Like, he wanted to get in on that shit. Right. John didn't really want to change his health food. He didn't want to add things to it to make it more appealing to people. He didn't really care about making a ton of money off the cereal. He would even tell people how they could make it at home. He, He just really wasn't interested in breaking into the market like that. So... 
Will started his own cereal company, <gasps> aptly named Kellogg's. <laughs> no. I did not know that. He chose the rooster as the company mascot because Will liked that the Welsh word for rooster, which I'm assuming is pronounced Kellogg, sounded like his last name. Oh my goodness. And being the fun one, Will added sweeteners and flavor enhancers to his Kellogg's cornflake cereal. He also began an aggressive marketing campaign that changed the way companies marketed their products. Soon, Kellogg was a household name, and the rest, as they say, is history. So the next time you're enjoying a bowl of cereal, remember that its creation stemmed from a man's dislike, or maybe even fear, of masturbation. Oh my goodness, that was so pardon the pun, juicy. I did not know that Will swooped in and basically created an empire from John's lack of uh, anything good. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they they pretty much had created the cereal together Mm -hmm. I know that it was probably started because obviously John was big into the health food trend Mm -hmm. but they they pretty much invented the cereal together and I just think that Will basically saw this huge opportunity and John wasn't interested in it so why not Mm -hmm. I think that they had some disputes after the Kellogg's company got started I'm not sure how their lives together ended but um I think that sometimes if you see an opportunity, you just have to fucking go for it. And John would have never put sugar on his cereal anyways. Mm -hmm. We all know that. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, sugar is just fucking sex dust, basically. It is. It is the ultimate That's why I always sprinkle a little bit extra onto my coffee, into my hair in the morning, (laughs) whatever, just to get me going. I mean, I love it that he was like... yeah, I see an opportunity here and we're going to go big or go home and masturbate. So I feel mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. that is cool. I did not know that story. I did not know that. And now if you're ever on Jeopardy, you'll know why there's a rooster on the box. Yes. That was amazing. Thank you so much for telling that story. You're welcome. Well, not so much switching gears, because I also am covering the, well, it's not really the history of it, but a fantastic history of another breakfast condiment, not exactly a food, maple syrup. I will say that maple syrup probably does make people horny. Oh, it for sure does. Oh, okay. Well, I don't know. Wow. I'm just saying personal experience. Oh, <laughs> in your story no not just a personal uh opinion wow okay i'm sure that these people in this story have had sex in their lives (laughs) okay anyway let me let me just get to it so what is in this twisted tale of pure canadian maple syrup well the nectar of the gods i'm certain that maple syrup can perform miracles save relationships There is nothing that it can't do. In fact, at times, I probably have more maple syrup running through this temple of a body than I do water. And I'm fine with that. That's how I like it. But back to the story I'm about to tell. We have a syrup cartel, a syrup black market, 
barrel runners, rebellious independent syrup tappers, and the biggest heist in Canadian history, valued at $18 million in liquid gold from the French-Canadian hills. Also, perhaps maybe you might hear a bad French-Canadian accent and a many butcherings of French names. So buckle up, Buttercup. Did you know that the price of syrup per barrel is higher than crude oil coming out of Saudi Arabia? I did not know that. It is super expensive. Imagine if the Beverly Hillbillies would have tapped into maples instead of oil. (laughs) Next, fucking level rich. So maple tapping can be an inconsistent business. A tapper's income is based on what the season yields. So in 1966, a group of, well, rappers, that's an autocorrect. Maybe they did rap, I don't know, but tappers, got together and decided to form a maple syrup syndicate in Quebec. They called themselves the Federation of Quebec Maple Syrup Producers, or FPAQ for short. The idea was to make maple syrup tapping a consistent and profitable business. But like with most things, what starts with good intentions can quickly turn into a powerful maple syrup cartel dominating 70% of the world's pure maple syrup supply. It's a slippery sweet slope. The FPAQ wanted to create a large reserve of maple syrup so if they they experienced a low-yielding spring, they would sell from their reserves, stabilizing the cost of syrup to beat the inconsistent pricing of the competition south of the border, which is us in the United States. That makes sense, though. Yes. To build this reserve, however, they implemented strict regulations the tappers in Quebec had to abide by. Maple producers in the Quebec area are required to join the FPAQ. No questions. They have to join. Then they're required to send a specific amount of maple syrup they have tapped from their trees on their property, no less, no more. Then the FPAQ inspects, tastes, and grades the syrup. The FPAQ then sells a portion of that syrup, and they store the rest in the reserve. Out of every barrel, they keep $54 off the top, no matter what they sell and what they put in the reserve. And this is for, you know, advertising, testing, grading, selling it. Consider it a tax or processing fee, if you will. However, tappers are only paid for the syrup the reserve sells. And sometimes it takes years for them to sell syrup. So in Quebec's maple syrup community, there's a very clear line drawn in the sand between the FPAQ and the free market syrup sellers or the free market tappers. And a tapper is... I don't know if that's an official term. That's what I say. It's someone who taps the trees and gets the maple out of the maple trees. So the FPAQ is interesting because some tappers are willing to give up a little bit of their freedom for security. And some tappers who live in Quebec want to be able to sell free, free on the what's called the free market, which they can sell to whoever they they choose they can sell as much they want or as little as they want so it's it's complicated and i don't know the free sellers would say they were like a mob per se um and the fpaq supporters would say they are um, good for the maple community in quebec so the free sellers 
or tappers who do who live in the Quebec area and don't want to be part of the FPAQ, uh, if they don't abide by the rules, they can accrue fines that total up into the millions, long legal battles, and even seized maple trees. Jeez. Yes. This is the most Canadian story I've ever heard. <laughs> also. It really truly is. So... Think of a neighborhood, and let's say, for all intents and purposes, there's a neighborhood mob, okay? Mm -hmm. And in this neighborhood that's run by the mob, there's a price to pay for doing business. The mob will protect your business, bring you business, but there's a fee and a price that you must pay without questions and rules that you must follow without question. It's kind of like that some people consider, but more sophisticated, powerful, and well-connected within the Canadian government. That's of some people's opinions. So while the idea of our friendly upstairs neighbor running a powerful syrup mafia is intriguing, we're really here for the heist. So on any day, this reserve can hold up to 7.5 million gallons of syrup. There are vats upon vats upon vats of turning syrup, warehouses of white barrels stacked from floor to ceiling with syrup labeled light, extra light, medium, amber, and dark, waiting to be sold to pancake and crepe lovers across the world. Everybody loves syrup. I haven't met one person who doesn't love syrup. This estimated street value is $185 million. Oh my God. Yeah. I just imagine a Willy Wonka-esque factory behind these doors. Just something of wonder and amazement. I mean, wouldn't that be fun? Like the river is maple syrup instead of chocolate milk? Yes. Yes. Uh, So the FPAQ only inspects the syrup once a year. And the barrels are very heavy. You cannot be, they cannot be lifted by a human. They have to be lifted by a forklift. So it was a surprise in 2012 when during an inspection, one of the barrels was tipped over by the hand of an inspector and toppled down. He was on the very top. Yeah, it was kind of scary, he said. To his surprise, he tapped the barrel and heard a drumming sound that only meant the barrel was empty. Thinking it to be an inventory mistake, he went about his inspection and he found another and another and another and to everybody's shock they discovered the contents of nearly 10,000 barrels of maple syrup had been stolen this led to one of the biggest canadian investigations of all time quebec police (laughs) the royal mounties and u.s customs deployed nearly 300 investigators combined to this warehouse so the, the investigators discovered that, o- that over the years, 2011 to 2012, all of the theft occurred. And they realized that it might have been an inside job, but not somebody that worked for the Federation. Because what the Federation did, or the FPAQ, is they actually didn't own any of the warehouses. They rented them. And some of these warehouses were a shared space so they had other renters using other warehouses so they figured that it had to be someone with a key code or an access code but not someone who actually worked for the fpaq although these warehouses 
contained millions of dollars worth of inventory. They did not have cameras. What? They did not have cameras. So, so they had no idea. They had no idea who stole this syrup other than they suspected it was somewhat of an inside job. So they began just hitting the street and following this river of liquid gold that spread across Canada and into Northern America or uh, United States. So they tracked down and they found a bunch of barrels, um, but they also found a bunch of syrup. I don't know how they tracked down the syrup in all the articles and I'll name my sources at the end. In everything that I've seen, they didn't say how they discovered it was the syrup. There was just a trail of syrup. There was literally a trail of syrup and they just followed it. (laughs) No, not to make light of this police work. They actually, it was incredible, like just back to basics, follow where the syrup went. Police work. It was pretty incredible. Everything that I've read, it said like the investigators, it was just like grinding, um, police work trying to figure out who stole this and where it went and how to recover it so what these thieves would do is they would break into the warehouse and at first they started using forklifts to take the barrels out and they would travel they would excuse me transport the barrels to what they called a sugar shack deep in the woods close by but deep in the woods and then they would siphon out the syrup put it in their own barrels, and then they would refill the FPAQ's barrels with water, and then they would bring them back to the warehouse because they knew that they only expected, they only inspected every year, and if they were full, nobody would notice because it could be years before they went to sell mm-hmm. this syrup and, and discover that it was water. So smart. But then they started getting greedy, and the thieves started siphoning the barrels straight from the warehouse so and that's how they were really discovered i mean these barrels were 600 pounds i picture it like when people used to siphon gas out of a car with like their mouths and i picture Mm -hmm. them doing this with syrup and it was just a large yellow bear with a big tummy and a crop top (laughs) and his little friend with anxiety heard of winnie the pooh's outfit described as a crop top (laughs) And it was you know just... that crop top wearing bear and his super Debbie Downer friend, and then the one that's always bouncing off the walls. And it's just, and then it was just a trio. They found it was a trio. It was an anxiety-ridden piglet and a tiger with ADHD, and the ringleader was really just a very hungry bear wearing a crop top and a really sad jackass. That's in right. The group. Yes. Eeyore was my favorite one. I can't believe you left him out. Uh, Eeyore was your favorite? Yeah. I mean, obviously, Tigger was my favorite. <laughs> uh, because, yeah, we were both the same. Um, the, it took them almost a year to track this down, and they found they found some barrels in a candy shop in the United States in Vermont. And the owner was like, I had no idea it was stolen syrup. (laughs) And (laughs) what? Uh, Huh? (laughs) So um, 
the ringleader of this heist is pretty mysterious. I could not find anywhere that it said how he had access. I think he was the owner of one of the warehouses that the the FPAQ rented or leased from him. So that's how he had access to the syrup. But mm-hmm. also, uh, and his name is Richard Vallier, and his father, Raymond Vallier, was actually a free market syrup seller. So I'm thinking maybe it was a coincidence and I think maybe Richard Vallier was one of these like free market uh, people that had something against the FPAQ. Mm-hmm. There's very many layers to this this story and it's just it's it's just about syrup. It's so interesting. Okay, so the people they they basically did like 400 interviews they went all the way to United States. The US, like I said, the U.S. Customs got involved. They tried to track down the syrup as much as they could, and um, up to thirty people were charged. Wow. Okay, so we have the heist ring, the ringleaders, the people involved. So we have Richard Vallier, who was the ringleader, and he um, got access to the warehouse. And then we have Raymond Vallier, his father who was a syrup dealer in the free market. And then we have Antone Saint-Pierre, who was also a syrup reseller or syrup dealer in the free market out of New Brunswick. And then we have Vic Caron. He was the insider whose spouse owned the FPAQ warehouse, and that's how they got access mm-hmm. to the warehouse. And then we have a Sebastian Dutras, who was a trucker who was involved in the stolen syrup. And he, to this day, claims that he did not know that it was stolen syrup. Although he got it from a sugar shack in the middle of the... (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I pictured all of them as characters from Winnie the Pooh. Now at this point, this whole thing is being reenacted as a cartoon in my mind. For one. (laughs) For two, it's always impressive. I don't know if impressive is the right word, but it's always crazy to me to think that... Like, how do you get these crews together? Who, how do you put feelers out for who is going to actually be involved and then not immediately rat you out? Or who's going to say yes? Well, it was interesting because Mo, I don't know if you put your feelers out there. I've never um, organized like a crime ring, which bucket list, yeah, just saying. We should definitely do that in our golden years. <laughs> okay, so... Richard Vallier, I don't know, a couple different articles said a couple different things. So they say that he was part of the free market and he had a like a vendetta against the mm-hmm. FPAQ. Um, or they just, and then this, another show, I watched a Netflix show, which was fantastic, by the way. I recommend it and I'll cite all my sources at the end, like I said. But they said that he just wasn't really into syrup, in the syrup business, but he saw an opportunity. So... I don't know, but what happened is they started adding more and more people, and I think maybe the new people got um, greedy and then started siphoning straight from the barrels in the warehouse. Mm -hmm. And also what they did is in the warehouse, they have these special forklifts that have like little Mm -hmm. hooks, and it hooks on top of the barrel and on the bottom of the barrel, and it doesn't leave any marks. Mm -hmm. Well, what they use is just a plain old forklift that they like grabbed it by the sides, and they left scrapes 
all over it. And also the barrels that they filled up with water started to rust, have Mm -hmm. rust rings on the outside because of um, condensation from the heat and temperature change, which syrup doesn't have condensation. So they knew that something was going on with the barrels once they started to investigate how many barrels that there actually were based on rust and marks and um, obviously some were lighter than the typical 600 pounds and some were empty. So these men were um, brought to trial for this theft. And so Richard Vallier was sentenced to eight years in prison and he was also given a $9.4 million fine. Ouchie wah Yes. And if the fine wasn't paid, he was given a 14-year extension. Oh, shit. Yeah. So Raymond Vallier, um, he was convicted of possession of stolen syrup. Um, Etienne Saint-Pierre was um, convicted of... Um, the trans, the transportation of stolen syrup and um, sale of stolen goods. Um, Evie Caron was sentenced to five years plus a one point two million dollar fine, and Sebastian Jutras, the trucker, was also um, convicted and given eight months in prison for the transportation of stolen syrup. Which is crazy. This is all about syrup, you know. Mm-hmm. yeah it's like at the level of like drugs or something but it's just maple syrup it is really is just maple syrup <laughs> it's, that is crazy but i mean it doesn't really matter what it is if you can make enough money off of it a crime will occur yes and so what they did was they were able to sell this syrup to legitimate buyers mm-hmm. so the chances of us at one point in our life eating this mm-hmm. stolen syrup is really high well i'm happy to be an accomplice yes <laughs> and that was the 200 witnesses they tracked down <laughs> uh, okay so now uh, well during the trial um richard valier said that he was actually held at gunpoint and told to steal the syrup, which the jury did not believe. Um, Okay. I mean, honestly, it would be better to say that you um, ate too much syrup and you were, you slipped into a food coma and you, you blacked out. You, you you just blacked out and you stole 10,000 barrels of syrup. The warehouses now are, are really under lock and key. They're guarded. They have cameras they are considered the holy of holies. It is a Canadian treasure and they take their syrup security much more seriously these days. And and none of the syrup was really ever, some was confiscated, but most of it was sold to the black market and consumed by the waffle eaters of the world. <laughs> and that is the story of the great Canadian maple syrup heist, its official name, the on-record largest agriculture heist in the world. I believe it. Isn't that wild that syrup is more expensive than crude oil? I had no idea. Um, That's a great story. I can't believe I'd never 
heard of it. I'm really into these kind of true crime stories that are not, you know, super dark. Yeah, we're talking serial, not serial killers today. You should have probably started with that. <laughs> I wish you I wish you probably. would have led with that. That was a perfect intro as our outro. <laughs> okay, let me set my sources really quick now that I'm uh, asked backwards. Uh, so I watched the series Dirty Money, and it was the Maple Syrup Heist episode. And Dirty Money on Netflix, it has two mm-hmm. seasons. It is such a good series, and it's basically like white collar crimes. Okay, I love it. I'm 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 into that. It is so cool. Um, it's such a it's like true crime, but. You know, if if you want a different genre of true crime, check out Dirty Money because it's pretty cool. And yeah, you, Tiffany and I are into the true the white collar true crime because it's so interesting and it's you know the underdog of the true crime genre. Mm-hmm. I think most people go straight for the blood and guts, mm-hmm. and sometimes it's nice to have a little story about you know a heist or two, even if it is maple syrup. Yeah. Oh, and also wikipedia and a article in wayfair written by rich cohen called inside quebec's great multi-million dollar maple syrup heist and i thought that was interesting because there's two so many layers that you have the free market tappers maple syrup tappers and then you have these big uh what people would call a cartel and they're just operating openly within everybody to see maybe questionable business practices and then you have this guy who's like well I have access to you know 185 million dollars worth of syrup I might as well I mean isn't it like you said it's so Canadian right they're going to do a heist it's going to be a maple syrup heist exactly exactly and look we even got out of this episode without my bad French Canadian French Canadian accent I'm honestly a little bit disappointed about that I know well I figured butchering the names was cringy enough (laughs) well I guess that wraps up our episode today yeah thank you so much for listening everybody we truly appreciate it we have some new listeners coming in and it's very exciting for us to grow our little weird community yes and today happy hour it's a shot of syrup everybody for on the house around (laughs) on the house you're gonna buy all of our listeners a single shot of syrup yes very generous (laughs) it is it's expensive (laughs) anyways thank you so much for listening like tiffany said uh we so appreciate all of your likes and reviews and the subscribes that you give us we are just so thankful and on that note love yourself wink wink Lock your doors and your syrup vaults and light some sage. Cheers to that. Cheers to that. <laughs>